like to thank uh, Tim for mentioning that worldview survey at the beginning of the service, because basically what we've been doing here, as we've looked through these three first three chapters here of Genesis, is we're trying to answer those big questions uh, from the Christian worldview. And it's just a fancy word for saying the Christian faith, and how it applies uh, to the different realms of life. And today we're answering the question of what is man, or who is man? Why is man important? Why is he different? And this is foundational uh, for you as an individual, and for us as a people. How you view who you are and who your neighbors are will impact how you treat them. And the one thing you take with you everywhere you go is you. So what you think about yourself really does matter. And in today's age, we are kind of obsessed with answering that question, who we are. And there's no shortage of personality tests you can take. And then there's books upon books printed about those personality tests. So you can dive really deeply into who you are to come to know yourself more. And you can do all the finest navel gazing uh, that you want at a short, for a short fee. So there's no shortage of people out there to sell you a gimmick or sell you some form of self-affirmation or actualization and, of course, self-esteem. And so we should ask ourselves the question, why do we spend so much time to convince ourselves that we're actually worth something? Why do we spend so much time asking ourselves questions about ourselves? And it goes back to the beginnings. As I've said to you again and again throughout uh, this series, what you think about where the universe came from matters and impacts everything uh, that follows. I've been using this formula for a bit, but I'll read you a, a very short quote here from Francis Schaeffer. He put it this way. He says, beginning with the impersonal, everything, including man, must be explained in the terms of impersonal plus time and plus chance. This point is clear. If you start with the impersonal beginning, just a collection of atoms that just went boom, and then everything came from that, then everything in the universe has to be explained in the terms and the categories of impersonal, time, and chance. That includes you. Impersonal, time, and chance. That's who you are. Such reasoning led Schaefer to explain, or to lament this. The dilemma of modern man is simple. He does not know why man has any meaning. He is lost. Man remains a zero. This is the damnation of our generation in the heart of modern man's problem. We don't know why we mean anything. We don't know why we matter. In fact, we've been reduced to nothingness, so much so that later on he says that we are basically junk. That is how we view ourselves, and yet we try to convince ourselves different. So if you teach men and women, if you teach children that basically they are cosmic junk, do we think that will impact how they treat themselves? How they treat others? So we get murder, we get abortion, euthanasia, sex trafficking, self-mutilation, depression, hate, anger, anxiety, despite being the most educated, the most well-off civilization this universe has ever seen. The other problems don't seem to go away. What you believe about who you are will impact you every single day. And in the West, we basically have, we have two different options. Right? There are two different alternatives given to the Christian view of man. And really, these two different alternatives are really one, and they impact each other on more of a sliding scale. But we're going we're gonna to look at them as two different ways that our society answers this question. And it basically views man as a highly evolved animal. 
And the first view of man is that he's just a biochemical machine. You are just your biology. You are reduced to the genes you've inherited through generations upon generations. And the thing, and, and the thing is, there's some truth to this. Your biology does impact you. I have, not this morning, but on a lot of mornings, I have a little mini-me running around who looks a lot like his father. Your hair color, your eye color, your height, your weight, a lot of those things will be largely inherited from your parents. Is that all man is? In this view, man is reduced to just your chemicals and your biology. You have a brain, but you do not have a mind. Your brain is just the electrical firings inside this chunk of meat up in your head, but you have no mind behind that and no soul. There is no real you behind any of it. There's no person, just biology. Dr. Francis Crick, if that name rings a bell to you, he was a famous scientist who, who did the groundbreaking work on the human uh, DNA and the genome. And he said that you all are pretty much all predetermined by your biology. Everything you do. It only appears that you have freedom. It only appears that you have dignity and that you make choices. But it's mostly shaped by your DNA. Or take the words of Marvin Minsky of MIT. He says the human brain is just a three-pound computer made of meat. And then he says this. No matter what the physical universe provides, no room for the freedom of the will. That concept is essential to our modern models of the mental realm. We cannot give it up. We virtually are forced to maintain that belief, even though we know it's false. What he says is, we have no biological reason whatsoever that you have a free will or a will of any sort. But we can't stop thinking about it that way. So even though we know it's false, we are going to pretend like we have wills. My rebuttal to that is, if your view of the universe can't explain basic human experience, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're, you're missing something. But if we are just biochemical machines, then the things that you do are just the byproduct of the chemical firings in your head. Your mind is just a highly evolved thing of nature. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, how do I know that? Francis Crick again. I love these guys because they're honest. This is what he says. He says, our highly developed brains, after all, were not evolved under the pressure of discovering scientific truths, but only to enable us to be clever enough to survive. Francis Crick says, you're reduced to your biology, but you know what? Your brain is just evolved to survive, not to find truth. Well, if he is right, then there's no way that we can know that he is right. There's no way that we can view his scientific truths as being true. His system destroys itself. It gets even worse. Crick says, biologically speaking, there is no foundation whatsoever to think about any of us as being equal whatsoever. This is what he says. It's it was valid to say, in the period of the American Revolution, that all men were created equal. But that doesn't have biological validity. It's not only biologically not true, but it's also biologically undesirable. Survival of the fittest means that some people have better genes, better DNAs, and uh, they should be able to do what they want. The strong survive, they go on to reproduce, and the weak don't. 
That's the ethic of the universe. It is not desirable that we are considered equal. Therefore, it is not a large step to exterminate those viewed as biologically inferior. And people have done that throughout history. The second option with this view of man as an animal is really that he is just a socialized creature. He's not determined just by his biology, but he's determined by society, by his upbringing. Nature versus nurture, as it were. Just like you can train your dog to do certain tricks, to sit, to stay, to shake your hand, maybe even to roll over. Humans are just like animals in that we can be conditioned and trained. This was put forward by the famous psychologist B.F. Skinner. He wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And in that book he says, freedom and human dignity are illusions. Again, we have evolved to think that we have these things, but really, all of your choices are predetermined by how we were raised in the society that you grow up in. Skinner declared, the individual does not initiate anything. So when you go to eat lunch today, you're not initiating that. Society has programmed you to eat whatever it is you're going to eat. And thus Skinner argued that what we need is an elite to control and to condition us so that we can reach some utopia. If you start with an impersonal universe, plus time, plus chance, this is all you get. Could that not be the source of our current inhumanity towards each other? That we don't treat people as humans because we've been told that we're really not any different than anything else. So we hate our brothers and sisters, we lie about them, we gossip, we slander. Our kids shoot up schools and kill themselves. We crush the skulls of our infants in the womb. Just biological junk. Well, today, we're going to look at the opposite. That's a long introduction. That's the one side of the fence we can go to, or we can look at what the Bible has to say about man. And this is the one that Western civilization was largely built upon. Did it ever live it out perfectly? No. But you still inherit and live under the benefits of things like human rights because our forefathers largely believed this view of man. What does the Bible say about man? Well, first, it teaches that humans are made in the image and the likeness of God. That we are both like him and we are both are in unlike him. To be like God means that there are ways we are similar to him and very different to him. So you are not a little clone of God running around this world, nor are you little gods. But you are like him. You're an image of him. If you ever spent expend, extended period of time away from a loved one, and you either had a picture of them, or today would be more relevant to say you, you could see them on FaceTime or on Zoom, you would see an image of them on a screen. And that would be a great benefit to you, because you could actually see something that's like them, but you know that it would be way better to actually be with that actual person. This, the image on the screen is not the person, but it's a reflection of who that person is. And to actually be with them in all of their beauty and complexity is far greater than to just have an image on a phone or a TV screen. Like that, us being made in the image of God means that we are like him in certain ways and unlike him. In the most basic sense, we are unlike God because we are not eternal. We are not independent. 
God needs nothing. God exists by the power of his own being. You do not. You are dependent upon God millisecond by millisecond to continue breathing, to continue thinking, and to continue functioning. You are dependent upon him for everything. He is not dependent on us for anything. And as we think about being made in the image of God and how we are like him, you should note there in Genesis 1 that God says, let us make him in our image. Not my image, but in our image. We would be wrong to read that and not see that as a reference to the Trinity, to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As you read the whole of Scripture, that is how God has revealed Himself to us, and He's got this massive hint right here at the beginning. Let us make man in our image. And we know from Scripture that God exists as one God in three persons. Three co-equal persons. And what that teaches us is that God, at his very core, besides being holy, besides being love, is personal. He relates within himself, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That behind everything in the universe is the infinitely perfect persons of the Trinity. Which means that this universe is not impersonal. Which means that persons like you and me, who are made in the image of God, exist. We are most like God in that we are eyes, or means. I'm a person. Just like God is three persons, I am a person. I'm not some highly evolved animal who exists off of survival instinct, but I have a me, an I, just as God himself has. And in this, the three-in-one God created man for two general purposes. I've told you this before, but the two purposes of mankind are to be priests and to be kings. God created man to relate to God. In Genesis 2, if you flip over in your Bibles there, God is walking with Adam in the cool of the evening. God speaks with Adam. Adam speaks with God. What did the priests do in the Old Testament? Once a year, they got to go behind the curtain, behind the veil, and enter into the most holy place and to be with God. God said to the nation of Israel that you will be a nation of priests. Why? Because God, through the tabernacle and then through the temple, lived with Israel in a way that he did not live with everyone else. And then Peter, in the New Testament, applies that to the church, that we are a nation of priests. That's at the very heart of what it means to be with God. In evangelical uh, hip language, which means you're meant to be in relationship with God. You're meant to relate to Him. That's part of what it means to be human. The second purpose is to be kings. Little kings. We're not the king of the universe. God alone is the king of the universe. But in this command of this creation story, God gives man a job. To rule and subdue His good creation. And we are still commanded to do that. And as we do that, we act as representatives of God over creation. We image God in that we are different than animals, we are different than rocks, we are different than trees. In fact, we are called to rule over those things on behalf of our Creator. And in order to do those things, we have to be personal, and God gives us attributes. In order to do these things, you have to have a will. 
You have to have a mind, a rationality, a morality. You have to think and feel and choose. These attributes are the subsets of what it means to be made in the image of God. God gives you those abilities so that you can do the things that he has assigned to us. The second thing the biblical view of man teaches us is a basic equality. A basic equality of humankind. Unlike what Crick and other Darwinists argue, there is a foundation for equality. This world is not just the survival of the fittest. If you're the strongest one in this room, you shouldn't just beat everyone up. Because that's not how the universe is designed. There is, if the ethic of the universe truly is survival of the fittest, then who are we to say otherwise? Who goes to the Serengeti and tells the lion to stop eating the zebra? If you're just a highly evolved lion, then why should anyone tell you to not do whatever you want? It is true that if we are just biological creatures, then there are people who have superior genes. There are people who have more desirable traits. And thus, biology, Crick is right, provides no foundation whatsoever for human rights or equality. But scripture says that your equality comes in your relationship to God. Why are all men equal? Because all men are created in the image of God himself. Every human being is made with value, worth, dignity, and rights because every human being at every stage of development and every intellectual level reflects the glory of God. It is that simple. So while we will have differences in biology, sex, wealth, intelligence, and so much more, all creatures are equal, or all humans are equal, because they are made in God's image. And our age is obsessed with doing the exact opposite of that. Our age is obsessed with dividing this room and every room up into different interest groups and then pitting them against one another. You're an oppressed. You're an oppressor just because of who you are. But here at the beginning, God says the human race is one. Common ancestry, common lineage, common starting place. Between the male and the female, there's a difference in one sense, biologically, sexually, and in their roles. But in another sense, we see that they are both humans. So much so that Genesis 1 says that both the male and the female created are created in the image of God. Man does not bear it more than woman, and woman does not bear it more than man. They both do. And this is why, throughout history, Christians have supported this idea of human rights, or as our founders put it, God-given rights. It's because of your relationship to God, whether you know him in a saving way or not, that you have rights, because you are made in his image. So as an image bearer, you have the unalienable right to liberty, to life, and to property. And this is why Christians have stood pretty much universally against the evils of things like euthanasia and abortion. Those issues are not purely political. They impact the political realm, but for, realm, but for Christians, they are pre-political. Why are Christians so against abortion? Because that baby's made in the image of God. I was asked um, this week to go pray at a rally outside of the federal courthouse in St. Paul as they were hearing the abortion case, and I said, what would be a better use of my time than that? So I went, 
and I prayed. And to think that some people argue that entering a woman's womb and ripping a child limb from limb or crushing his or her skull or burning them alive with acid is a good and honorable thing is absolutely despicable. Every human at every moment Every stage of development bears the image of God. And that is why Christians will always, if they are faithful, be against things like euthanasia and abortion. Now, of course, as with all sins, God offers forgiveness. Christ's blood covers all types of sins. The first step to being forgiven is to look at our sins and to denounce them for what they are. And this country's blood guilt is really high right now. Third, we see that at the creation of humanity, there's a twofold job given to mankind. Man is created for two purposes, and then he has a twofold job. Man has a mission, a job to accomplish. This is sometimes referred to by theologians as the cultural <coughs> mandate. Culture is just a fancy word for cultivate. It is to take what God has made in his good creation, and man is to bring stuff out of that. And the first part of this job is to be fruitful and to multiply. It creates male and creates female with obvious differences, and the coming together produces children. That's part of what it means to be human. And in one sense, the human race has done a pretty good job of this. We've got about six billion people on this planet right now, and that's not counting the generations that have come before us. We have been fruitful and we have multiplied, but yet the command remains. This is part of what it means to be human. But in general, we are meant to procreate. And this is why we need both men and women. Shocking as that may sound in today's world. It is only the coming together of a male and a female that produces children. And part of being human is the general call to get married, to have kids, and then to raise them to know the Creator Lord. And that theme is found throughout Scripture. God loves children, and He calls for faithful offspring. It's at the heart of His design for the universe, right here at the beginning. Go have lots of kids. Sometimes that's fun, sometimes it's not. That's apparent. But throughout Scripture, you find this fruitfulness all over the place. Fruitfulness is a gift of God. The lack of fruitfulness is a judgment of God. God promises to Eve in the next chapter, Genesis 3. He promises that she will have an offspring, a child, who will crush the head of the serpent. God promises to Abraham that he will have many offspring, many children, more numerous than the stars of the sky. God then echoes that promise to Israel that they will be this large nation. And in fact, they reproduce at such an alarming level in Egypt that Pharaoh is concerned. God promises David that he too will have an offspring, a child, and that child will sit on his throne forever. When you get to the New Testament, you see that the genealogy says, oh, Jesus is that offspring of Eve. He's the offspring of of Adam in Galatians 3. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's that faithful child that was promised. God desires faithful children. And hear this. God views children as a blessing. Our society often does. God views children as a blessing. So you must and I must 
even though they can be annoying sometimes, they can run around this building not thinking about anyone else. But they're a blessing. Conversely, Satan and those under his sway hate children. They hate, Satan absolutely hates offspring. Pharaoh sought to have the youngest kids in Egypt of the Israelite people to be killed for fear of the Jews. Herod, when the Messiah was born, did the same thing. He went and had the youngest children killed to oppose God's people. Satan devours children because he hates human fruitfulness. So it is not too much to say again that abortion is satanic. It is motivated by the evil one. And as God's people, we must love children and hate their murder. Second, the second job given is that, what I already mentioned, to rule and subdue. Be fruitful, multiply, then go forward and have dominion and subdue the earth. That is culture. God made this earth with potential in it, and then we bring good things out of it. From the car you drove here, from the cell phone in your pocket, to this pulpit I stand behind. God didn't make the pulpit. He made the raw material, and then some human made in his image put it together. Because that is part of what it means to be a human. We make treatments for diseases. We build houses, cars, computers, phones, cathedrals. We make art and sculptures and music, and we build societies because that is what it means to be made in the image of God. To be a human, in other words, is to work. To work in some way. In all godly occupations, every single one that is not inherently sinful is a way to serve God. From being a stay-at-home mom to being a lawyer, being a garbage man to being a teacher, being a mechanic to being a musician. All of those are honorable and good professions and part of what it means to serve God. Fourth thing we see about man, the doctrine of man, is that Christ is truly God and truly man. The incarnation, what we celebrate this time of year, is only possible because man was made in the image of God. Christ did not incarnate himself as a fish or a bear or a lion, but as a man. If humanity is just a highly evolved animal, then God could not have added a human nature to himself. But because God made humanity unique like him, then the Son is able to add to himself that human nature. And the Bible speaks of Jesus as the incarnated one. Here's the kicker. That he is the complete image of God. Man is made in the image of God. Christ, as the incarnated Son of God, then becomes the perfect image of God. So much so that he could say when he's on earth that if you see me, you have seen the Father. That is the God-man, he alone is that perfect image. And he succeeds at being human in ways that we fail. And then that, he becomes our hope. This is why Christ is called that offspring of Eve and of Abraham and of David. And it gets even more exciting if you're reading your New Testament well. You're made in the image of God. It's somewhat wrecked 
in the fall. Jesus is then the perfect image of God in the flesh. And then you, if by grace through faith are following him, are being made into the likeness of Christ. God made man in his own image, like him. And he is remaking man into the likeness of his son, degree by degree, transformed and renewed in the image of God through Christ. To be born again is to become more like God made humanity to be. It's to become more human. Because to be human is to be like God. What is holiness? It's God-likeness. It's being like God. To become more like God is to become more human as God intended it. And this means, brothers and sisters, the more you sin, the less human you become. This is why the Bible throughout Old and New Testament will refer to the wicked as animals. Because you're acting less like God has made you and more like a beast. So we must guard ourselves against the ruling presence of sin in our lives. That's a lot to take in on a snowy Sunday morning. What do we take from this? How do you take Levi's heady worldview this morning and go live? First, live as someone who has the high calling of being an image bearer. Think of yourselves in those terms first. This means a lot of things, but I think in our age, one of the chief things it means is you must realize that you are responsible for your own actions. You are not biologically predetermined, and you are not just conditioned by your environment. Those things impact you, but ultimately, you are accountable before God. You make decisions, and you will be held responsible for good or for bad. So do not give in to the drug of our day, which is always shifting the blame to your biology or to society. When you get before the Lord on the day of judgment, that's not going to work. Second, live among your family, your friends, and your neighbors and see them as image bearers too. Everybody you interact with is not cosmic junk. They're not just a way for you to get ahead. They're not just a nuisance in your life. As C.S. Lewis famously said, you've never met a mere mortal. Every person you interact with will live forever in heaven or in hell. Treat them as such. When you interact with other people, especially those who are difficult, those you disagree with, treat them with the honor, the dignity, and the accountability of being an image bearer, that that person reflects God. Do not attack or malign or treat them as less than you. So how might thinking that way impact how you treat that person that's popping into your head right now who you really just don't like? How am I thinking of them as someone who bears the image of God, not just the highly evolved animal? How might that impact how you interact with them? How you pray for them? Because you have never met a mere mortal. And you are surrounded day by day by the glory of the image of God Almighty. And you interact with it constantly. And we need to live as if that is true. Or as Schaefer put it, there are no little people. 
All of them bear the image of God. So all of them matter. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God who created and who reveals himself to us through his word. Lord, we thank you that we bear the great honor and responsibility of bearing your image in your creation. Lord, forgive us when we fall short of that lofty expectation. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our selfishness. Forgive us for thinking less of ourselves and less of others. Lord, we ask that through faith in Christ, you might renew and strengthen that image. That day by day, we might be transformed degree by degree into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. The one who is the perfect image of the invisible God. It's in his name we pray.